we're really pleased today, I mean, pleased and honored, I guess, uh, from our standpoint anyway, to have Camille Parmesan, Dr. Parmesan here from University of Texas. I've known her over the years, and um, she's done some of the most, uh, she's done some of the most uh, interesting work on climate change, and I don't mean to use the word interesting, but also some of the most scientifically robust research on ecosystems and the impact of climate change on ecosystems. Everything from butterflies to, to uh, large mammals to uh, uh, grasses, uh, uh, you know, the whole chain of uh, ecosystem feedbacks that involves uh, survival of species. Um, she's uh, talked before, she's given presentations before committees uh, in the Senate and the House members of those committees, the Texas Senate Natural Resources Committee. Um, she's worked, done work for the International Union for Conservation of Nature, World Wildlife Fund, as an expert on these, uh, in this area in general. She's been a contributing author in the IPCC process, and uh, she did a uh, review of the fourth assessment, the IPCC fourth assessment report on their section on uh, ecosystems. Um, she's also a party to the Nobel Prize uh, that was awarded to the IPCC researchers. Um, she was awarded the Outstanding Woman Working on Climate Change by the International Union on uh, Conservation. Uh, she's got the National Wildlife Federation's Conservation Achievement Award. She's been talked about, her work has been presented in various media outlets, New York Times, London Times, National Geographic, David Attenborough's series, uh, State of the Planet. Uh, she's been everywhere. She's done a lot up to now, and I think the career has got a, her career has got a lot longer to go. One last piece of information I wanted to share with you. Uh, I think uh, Camille did a, uh, a review of uh, ecosystems and their response to climate change um, for one of the prestigious journals in science. And those reviews are typically given to people. I mean, you're asked to do it. You don't stand up and nominate yourself. You're asked to do the review. And basically, the process of asking defers to people who've made a really mark of distinction in the field. And she did that review in 2006 and still cited today. So. Um, Getting myself out of the picture here momentarily, uh, let me introduce Camille Parmesan. We're really, really happy to have her. And part of what she'll say today has something to do with uh, suggested changes to the Endangered Species Act uh, to accommodate things that we didn't anticipate coming up. And uh, I think that will warrant some reflection on how that reads presently. So, Camille. I am going to uh, be talking about a lot of things today, some of them very, very briefly, um, uh, because it's, it's hard to decide what you're going to focus on. And I really do want to focus on the conservation aspects of climate change and in a, a very practical way what this means for where we need to be, where I think we need to be going in the United States over the next few years. But I do want to start by giving a bit of a framework to the talk. Uh, when we were in IPCC, they framed things in terms of attribution impacts and vulnerability, and I found out that's a very useful way to frame the discussion of uh, changes in biodiversity. So the attribution question for biodiversity is a bit different from what climate scientists talk about. 
I'm going to assume that climate change, uh, I'd, uh, so biologists can attribute changes to climate change. Uh, we are not in the, in the field of attributing the climate change to human causes. That's for the climate scientist. So when I say attribution, what I mean is there's a given trend in climate in a certain region, and how can we link changes in biodiversity, or can we link changes in biodiversity to those known changes in climate for that location? The impacts question then is, uh, given that there is a change, is this change negative or positive or actually just neutral? Is it just a change with uh, not necessarily any impact on overall biodiversity? And what, how many species are responding? So is this just one or two very sensitive species or it is actually you know, quite a few? And then there's the vulnerability question, given that you are having impacts, uh, what systems or what species are going to be most sensitive, most negatively impacted, which ones might benefit, and what does this mean for the effectiveness of our current conservation program? So the first, and, and I'm going to be breezing through this, I've written a lot about it, but I just want to touch on it very briefly, the attribution question, which is the first thing people think of is, well, all kinds of things are affecting biodiversity. Uh, all of our conservation NGOs were founded not because of climate change, but because of all these other human activities. Habitat loss being one of the big ones, but certainly increased nitrogen, um, air pollution, and to some extent ozone depletion is affecting our species as well. So how do you go from all of these things impacting a particular system to focusing in on climate change? Well, the first thing we do is you try to limit your studies to areas where the data is being gathered in relatively undisturbed areas. Now, there's no such thing as a pristine environment on Earth anymore, but certainly there are areas, large national parks, large wilderness areas, that are relatively much less disturbed than um, urban areas or agricultural areas. And so we really don't work uh, in terms of the impacts question. We're not, all the species I'm talking about, the data that I'm talking about is from areas that are considered to be relatively good habitat. So that at least the changes that I'm talking about aren't due to direct habitat loss. There may be some very uh, 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 subtle secondary effects, uh, but at least it's nothing overt like a large scale habitat loss. Now, the data is very variable in quality because a lot of it was collected for other purposes. Uh, there is some basic monitoring data, and that's actually the best data we have. But people collect data on their long-term um, field stations simply because they're studying some other aspect of the species or the system. And because it's not specifically being gathered to look for climate change impacts, you know, it may be skipping a few years here and there. It, um, the resolution uh, in space may not be all that good. Uh, and a lot of it's short term. And by short term, there's a huge number of data sets that are less than 10 years long. Not too bad if you go to 20 years, but then if you try to get 50 to 100 years data sets, you're really getting limited. And so what I tell people is when, when in trying to come up with conclusions about biodiversity, I think it's because of these sort of idiosyncratic problems with individual data sets, I encourage people to look at the big picture. So focusing on the meta-analyses, the summary numbers, the big picture, because all these idiosyncratic problems are going to create noise, but they're not going to create a particular overall pattern in the data set. And finally, there's something that uh, certainly scientists are very aware of, which is a positive publishing bias 
which means if you've studied this bird for 30 years and you find it's going northward, well, then you can publish that as a, as a paper on its own. If you study it for 30 years and it's not doing anything different at all, chances are you're not going to get that published. And the way you can deal with that in trying to come up again with these large-scale conclusions is to focus on multi-species studies. So focus on, on studies that looked at all the birds of Britain, all the butterflies of Europe, uh, et cetera, so that you're getting data on species that aren't doing anything, as well as ones that are responding. Uh, so secondly, I do like to point out that biologists have been studying the basic ecology behavior and genetics of species for a very long time. So we know a lot about quite a few of the systems that I'm going to be talking about. I don't have time to always give you all of that detail, but in the best case scenario, we've got long-term data so that you can see whether the long-term trends are actually correlated with long-term climate trends. If you've got really long time series, like you know, uh, 30 to say 100 years, you can look for particular extreme climate years or extreme weather events and see if you get a consistent response in the population you're studying. So both of those things help to uh, pinpoint what aspects of climate might be driving that population or that species. But then also scientists have been doing experiments on temperature and precipitation for many, many, many years. Uh, people do put out heat lamps, they, they put out um, things to shade uh, grasslands from getting precipitation, from getting rainfall, they add rain in, and this has been done for a good 40 years. And beyond that, there are very detailed laboratory experiments that have been going on even longer, uh, uh, more than 100 years, where people have been interested not only in sort of subtle things like the impact of temperature on growth rate or reproduction, but, you know, what, what temperature kills you? You know, taking something down colder and colder, heating it up more and more until you get to the basically survival threshold for that species. I don't know why people did this 120 years ago, but they did it. And so we've got a huge amount of data on absolute temperature and precipitation tolerances for many species. And then finally, uh, one thing that Gary Yeo and I brought together and, and it was the climate scientist who gave me this idea, was, was there some very particular pattern of change that absolutely could only be attributed to climate change and not to any of the other confounding factors that might be impacting the system? And we found that there were several different kinds of changes. I don't really want to go into it because I want to get to the conservation aspects. But uh, one of them that I think is very easy to understand, if you've got long-term time series, and you can look at the temperature data, that's this red line, over, uh, and this is global, but you get the same in the northern hemisphere um, in North America and in Europe. You had this warming in the 30s and 40s, and then a cooling in the 50s and 60s, and then right about 1972, it started the current warming period. Well, if you've got data series that go back 100 years, you can actually look to see whether populations responded differently to these different cooling and warming trends. So, for example, if you're, looking, if you're in Britain, where they have just fabulous data sets on the range boundaries for many birds and butterflies, and it's the northern range limit for these species, you can ask yourself, did the northern range limit go north in the 30s and 40s, 
south in the 50s and 60s, and then back north again. And you can see that for 100% of the species for which we have this kind of data, that's exactly what they did. You can do the same thing with timing of breeding. So there's this fabulous data set on a bird called the great tit. It's been studied since I think the data set goes back to 1920, 1930. So it's 70 years of data. And you can see that it advanced its breeding during this warming trend. It delayed it again during the cooling trend. And then now it's been advancing again in the recent warming period. So you've got these what we call natural experiments where you can look for consistency of response to these long-term changes. And those, that kind of response that I just described for either timing or for the northern uh, range boundary is something that is uniquely predicted as a response to the climate changes that have occurred in that region. There is no other change in terms of habitat changes, land use changes, pollution changes that could explain that particular pattern that I just described. And as I said, for 100% of the species that we've got that kind of data, all of them are actually following the climate trends. Okay, enough about attribution. I'm going to go on to uh, what is the bulk of my talk, which is to, uh, I'm going to spend about uh, half the rest of the time talking about the observed impacts and then the implications for conservation. So what's been very nice for me as someone trying to put together large sort of global conclusions is that the numbers of studies of actual people documented and documenting a change in a wild species that they attribute to local or regional climate change has been increasing amazingly in recent years. So this is from my 2006 study that Tony talked about. And you can see every year you just have more and more and more studies. And of course, it's increased. We've got another two or 300 at this point. And because a lot of studies now are looking at several species, we can again come up with much more um, robust conclusions because a lot of these studies represent not just one species, but 20, 40, 300, 400 species. This is an example of one of those multi-species studies. It's from my own work, uh, looking at 57 species of butterfly across Europe. And what we found in the, to make a very long story very short, is for the 52 species for which we had northern range boundary data going through Britain, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, 65% of them had expanded their northern range boundaries northward. So 65% had actually colonized new territory further north than they historically had been. And that's the beauty of doing this in Europe is because the records are so good, we know that these species were not at those locations 100 years ago. So we don't have that good of data in North America. Here, if you find a new population, it's very hard to say definitely that it was not there 100 years ago. But in Europe, they've had people who are crazy about butterflies for about 300 years. <laughs> so we've got really excellent data sets. And what this shows is that not only are they expanding northward, but they're doing it independently across different fronts. So uh, the Purple Emperor went from Germany, and we've got the records to show that it sort of marched across these islands between Denmark and Sweden, entered Sweden in the 1980s, 1983. And then in the next 10 years, it moved another 200 kilometers northward. So the rate of expansion is also increasing. And again, 
completely independently. It was in Estonia. Took it a while to get to Finland going across the sea. 1991, it entered Finland. And then in another 10 years, again, it went another 200 kilometers in just that 10-year period. Oh, and I should point out that its southern range boundary is completely stable. So nothing's happened along the southern range boundary. This species is a, a little more dramatic. It entered Estonia back in 1999, spread to the Baltic within just five years. And conversely, at the southern end of its range, uh, right along the Pyrenees, it completely went extinct from about a 100-kilometer uh, area all the way from Barcelona to the Pyrenees. Used to be very abundant there in the 1930s, and now is completely extinct. So we've got an example of one species that's sort of expanding its range northward, and the other species that's just uh, going extinct at the southern end and shifting completely northward. And these have two very different conservation implications. Uh, now, notice that the southern range boundary, the warm range boundary, is tending to be more stable. So only 22% of the species are showing changes at those equatorial range edges. And that's exactly what you'd expect from basic ecological theory, that colonizations should be a much faster process than extinctions. And this makes sense once you think about it. Especially for species that are long-lived, you can get a body in a place for a much longer time than that population is actually stable. And it's something in conservation we call extinction debt. And it's why people worry about small population sizes, why uh, you place species on the endangered species list even when they're still ex in existence, is because when you get down to these small numbers, when you get stressed, you can still have a, an adult there, a body there, but they may not be reproducing. Their survival rate may be down. And over years, you expect eventually um, to get extinction. Now, what I've been talking about with these, uh, to me, rather massive rain shifts with just 0.7 degrees centigrade warming, one of the questions I always get is, well, how do you know they're not just evolving? You know, we always hear about evolution and everything evolves, and how do we know that this isn't really a response to climate change, but they're just all evolving to live in areas they didn't li used to live in. Well, going back to the fact that we actually know quite a bit about a lot of these species, so here's one that came in from Africa into Spain. So it's a tropical species. It's a specialist of very hot microclimates. It has a known number of de uh, degree days, is a number of days above a certain temperature that you need in order to go through your life cycle. And you can see from all of this information that when it entered Spain, it was doing the same things that it had always done in Africa. So it, it still had the same microclimate, uh, hot microclimate um, need. It hadn't changed its host plant. It hadn't changed its life history at all. It was doing the same things it did in Africa, but now it's able to do it in Spain. And it's got lots of stable populations now. So again, we're seeing the same sort of, uh, just as I've been describing, temperate species moving up into the boreal zone, we are starting to see these tropical species moving up into the temperate zone. As with the, <coughs> the uh, <coughs> excuse me, as with the uh, African butterfly going into Spain, and we don't have as good a data for the USA, but we're starting to get evidence that the USA is also receiving tropical species um, several species dragonfly have entered Florida from the Caribbean. 
birds, the Rufus hummingbird and the Mexican green jay, which historically are, have been migrants, you know, going back down to Mexico and Central America in the winter, coming up into the USA in the spring, have now established resident populations in Texas and Alabama, respectively. And again, these are species, because they're tropical species, they're species which can't handle hard freezes. And by hard freeze, I mean, you know, a sustained uh, well below zero freeze. And so the fact, uh, we got butterflies coming up too, the fact that they're establishing resident populations is highly correlated with the winters becoming more mild in those regions. Now we do have some um, indication of diseases, and actually the disease information in wildlife is better than the disease information in humans, which always surprises me. Um, but we're seeing that the microorganisms, just as the large organisms are, are also moving northward. So an oyster parasite has expanded 500 kilometers northward, and a kidney disease of trout has expanded upward in Switzerland. So the same kind of shifts that we're seeing in these large charismatic animals, it looks like it's also happening in microorganisms. Now I just mentioned upward elevational shifts, and I want to show you um, sort of the success story, because it, I just think this is an amazing thing. This is in the Andes, which of course are very high. These were populations of amphibians that lived in this little lake down here back in 1931, so they re recorded there back in 1931. As the glaciers receded, this is now 2005, you can see there's a little set of lakes going up to the top. They have kept pace with that recession, and they, this is actually a record upward range shift of 400 meters, which is just astonishing. And unfortunately, the three species of amphibian carried along with them the critted fungus, uh, which is considered to be a, a, one of the primary causes of amphibian decline. But they seem to be doing okay, so maybe it's not so deadly at these colder temperatures. Now, other kinds of cold-adapted species, uh, that's sort of one example of a cold-adapted set of species. Other cold-adapted species are not in such luck. They actually don't have much area to go into that they don't already live in. And a perfect example of this are the sea ice-dependent species. In both the Arctic, where we've had massive loss of sea ice, the pink line is the average from 79 to 2000. And if you look at the time series, really over that whole time, it hardly changes any. Uh, back in 2005, there was a record low. Then 2007, another record low. 2008 is more or less like 2007. And this represents about a 40% loss of area, aerial extent of sea ice. And so it's no big surprise that the species in the Arctic that are, for which sea ice is their habitat are declining. Uh, like the polar bear and the ring seal, uh, large declines across the ranges, and for areas where we've got good data, like Hudson Bay, you've got declines in body weight of the, of the bears, as well as numbers of cubs successfully produced per year. And as you can see, because, um, you know, as the sea ice contracts, it's an absolute contraction in habitat area, there's really no place uh, that you can imagine where they can move to in order to be, remain viable. The same thing's happening down in Antarctica. Again, there are two species of penguin that are sea ice dependent species. 
Those are both showing declines, the largest being right along the Palmer Peninsula, where uh, massive losses of sea ice have occurred. The declines are from 70 to 95% for both of those species. And you've got some declines uh, and even a little increase, I think, in one of these areas at areas that are uh, closer to the pole, but they're not as severe. So again, it's the most equatorial populations that are showing these massive declines, and I suspect pretty soon extinctions, contracting them towards the pole. And at the same time, these warm adapted penguins, the Ginstrap uh, gin and the Gentoo, which are open ocean feeders, so they don't, the uh, Delhi and the Emperor have to go to the edge of the sea ice and drop off to feed. They're not very good swimmers. The Chinstrap and the Gentoo are much better swimmers, so they can actually go from land, swim out into the deep ocean, feed all they want. These have invaded the Palmer Peninsula in the last 20 to 50 years. Now, um, as I, I started with the Andean amphibians, because I sort of like to think that some things are going to be just fine, but of course, as with the Arctic and Antarctic sea ice species, most mountaintop species do not have enough mountain to go up and just be okay. And we're starting to see that with some species in both Europe and the USA. Uh, the pika is, I think, the best USA example. It's a, a high elevation, cold adapted species, lives on talus slopes, so again, very undisturbed areas. Back in the early 1970s, uh, basic ecologists did a lot of work on them in the field, found out they're very temperature sensitive. The, this is when ecologists used to be rather um, un-PC, and uh, the person had, was interested in range boundaries and was wondering why it doesn't live below 7,500 meters, and he was watching them at this lower elevation and noticing that they didn't feed during the day in August. So when it got hot, they just disappeared. And he thought, well, I wonder if, if the heat would kill them. So he stuck them out in cages in the middle of the desert, and lo and behold, it killed them. And he did it over and over, nice replication, got a really good estimate that when they get over 31 degrees centigrade for more than, say, half an hour, they die of heat exhaustion. And so the, uh, linking those two together, the extinctions of those lower elevation populations are very likely due to just a gradual increase in temperature. And not so much that, I mean, pikas aren't stupid, they do hide, uh, but it would prevent them from feeding. So it wouldn't necessarily kill them outright, but they, they need to feed all day. And if they can't feed all day, at some point, they're not going to be able to live in that site. So this is the grand summary of, at least uh, as of a few years ago, it's always changing. Uh, as to what the impacts have been globally. This, these numbers are focusing only on multi-species studies. There are no individual species studies in here, so the publication bias has been dealt with. And what you see is this first bar, um, or the middle bar, the dark bar. Yeah, the colors didn't come out too well. The dark bar is number, percent of species that are not changing. So those are the stable ones. And you can see in terms of changes in timing, about 50% of species are stable, but a whopping 42% are actually advancing their timing in the spring. And then a few are actually being a little perverse and delaying their timing. But this, getting this difference by chance uh, is less, I think, one in a billion. So very, very strong signal of response to warming in terms of timing of events. 
When you go to the cold boundary of species range, so those northward range boundaries in Britain, Sweden, Finland, and Canada, the, the uh, summary is, I think, much more dramatic. Some 70, I think it's 74% of species are showing expansions at those cold range edges. So expansions towards the poles or up the mountains. And about 17% you know, are stable, and then a few, again, are going in the opposite direction. If you go to the warm boundary of the species range, so those equatorial range boundaries or the lower elevation boundaries, there is a lot more stability, which I pointed out. So it's not just the butterflies. It's when you look over all species. And this is trees, amphibians, birds, marine species. It's everything under the sun. You do consistently see a lot more stability. But again, when you look at the ones that are changing, you're tending to see a significantly higher proportion of range contractions, so going up the mountain, contracting towards the poles, uh, with very few going the opposite direction. And it's these range contractions that are the real cause of conservation concern. And as I, again, you expect a lag time, so you would expect this proportion to shift towards more than contracting as time goes on. Uh, now, when you look at these summary numbers, notice that this doesn't necessarily say that the changes are bad, right? So if things are expanding northward, maybe that's just fine. Of course, the contractions are a little bit of a worry. Um, but changes in timing, you know, what do we care if things are breeding a couple of weeks earlier? So I want to focus on that a little bit. Uh, you know, are the, neg are the impacts actually negative? Well, we know for some species they certainly are. So the golden toad has gone extinct. I think it's the best example of the species for which we've got pretty good evidence that the extinction was caused by climate change. Uh, as it, you had this long time series, 20 some years, where every time you had a population crash, it was associated with a, a dry bout, so more than five dry days. There was no evidence for this fungus in these populations. They exist in Monteverde National Preserve. It's a beautiful, wild, very undisturbed place. The fungus was not present. It's a very obvious thing that the frog turns white. So this is not a subtle thing. And the person living on the site was an amphibian biologist looking at these things every day. He never saw the fungus present. Uh, climate modeling suggests that this area did have a lifting of the cloud forest. And you had some upward shifts of other species indicating that, indeed, other organisms were responding to the regional climate change. The other group of species that is being severely negatively impacted are coral reefs. And I think it often surprises people because coral reefs are in, tropical coral reefs are already in the hottest waters on the Earth. So you think they would be really you know, doing better as Earth got warmer. But it turns out that they're actually living just below their temperature tolerance. So what this graph shows is sea surface temperatures through time going 1981 to 1999. And every time for this particular reef, every time the sea surface temperature gets above about 29.2 for any sustained period, so not here and here, but all of these arrows represent a bleaching event. So it's a very specific temperature threshold which is actually just above where the sea normally is. And as these temperature thresholds have been uh, breached over and over, where is it? 
what we've seen is that 30% of tropical coral reefs have completely disappeared. They've, gone, they've bleached out, they're not recovering, they've gone extinct. And because the biodiversity of reefs is not very well categorized, we don't actually know how many species extinctions that represents. And then in terms of these cloud forest amphibians, there's some indication that another, well, we know another 73 amphibians have gone extinct, and there's some indication that that is also related to climate change or some complex interaction between climate change and the fungus. So we are seeing negative impacts. There's no question about that. And in some of the systems that actually I think people are quite surprised about. So I want to get back to this idea of adaptation and evolution. Because uh, I, I think, it, it, biologists included, people would like to believe that, that life can simply adapt to this climate change, right? Um, and as, an, as someone trained in evolutionary biology, I think, you know, in theory that might sound fine, but in practice that isn't what we're seeing. And so this is, we are seeing local evolution at the population level. And that's what this represents, is these, the red is a, a hot adapted genotype, the green is a more cold adapted genotype. This 1997 El Nino event killed off, bleached almost all of the you know, more cold adapted genotype, and so after the event, a much higher proportion of the population had this sort of hot genotype. And we're seeing this kind of evolution in f many species of fruit fly, in uh, mosquitoes, uh, to some extent in butterflies as well. But the, um, I think the key message from this is where we're seeing this kind of local population level evolution is in the interior of the species range. This is not what's happening at the range edges. So the northern range boundary those populations are not changing their genotypes. And when you look at the changes that are being seen, it's playing around with the genetic variation that that species already had. We're not seeing any new mutations at all in any of the species, even when we've got 50 years of genetic data. We're seeing nothing, no novel mutation evolving that would allow them to live in a climate more extreme than what they historically have lived in. So yes, we're seeing evolution, but it's, it's what we call microevolution. It's playing around with the genetic variation you already have. It's not macroevolution, which is what you would need for the species to actually be able to live somewhere where it's never lived before. So adaptation, locally, sure, it could help. But this is not sort of the global panacea uh, that'll prevent species extinctions. Okay, so briefly, let's get uh, back to phenology, to changes in timing of events. Again, we're getting a lot more studies, so now we can start seeing some interesting patterns. Each of these bars now is an individual species. Bars going down represent advancement of the timing of spring events. Bars going up represent delay of the timing of spring events. So the first thing you can see is almost all the bars are going down. So even ones that are not changing very much, even if it's not a significant change, it's actually an advancement. And the next thing you notice is there's a lot of variation. There's a lot of variation within a group, so that's within birds, within butterflies, within herbs and grasses, and within amphibians. But there's also now enough data that we're seeing significant differences between groups. So amphibians are advancing their spring breeding eight times as strong as are any of the other groups. Their response is eight times as strong. 
Birds and butterflies are advancing their emergence or their arrival three times as strongly as our herbs and grasses. So this is one of the first indications of something that conservation biologists have been worried about is our interacting species starting to become out of sync. So this is an indication is that this may be a problem. So what does it matter if you're just advancing your timing? Uh, this may be an example that you talk about. But here's just the data, frost data for the USA. So the uh, green line is spring frost, and you can see it's ending much earlier in the wintertime now. So it's the last frost is much earlier now. The, red, uh, the blue line is fall frost. Fall frost is coming a little bit later. And when you put those two together, this red line, you can see that in areas where you've got enough precipitation, the length of the growing season has expanded. So you've got an earlier spring and a later fall, so you have about two or three weeks, sometimes even four weeks, extra time for growing. Now, if you look at when the warming has been happening, this is for, oh boy, that's really hard to see. This is a focus on North America. The warming trends have predominantly been in the winter months. So not much in the summer or the, even the spring. If you put those two pieces of information together, a longer growing season, warmer winters, what it's meant is that you've had these huge outbreaks, particularly of forest pest, beetles and moths that cause damage to trees. And this has not been an isolated thing. Uh, the mountain pine beetle has had massive outbreaks in both Colorado and in British Columbia. The spruce bark beetle killed off almost 4 million acres in Alaska. Uh, similar outbreaks of the pine processionary moth in Italy and France. And then Siberia has a group of forest pests that it's had problems with as well. And this is, uh, this is just a matter of um, generation time and mortality. I mean, the cold winters are what kills off these pests. As winters are warmer, they're not having as much winter mortality. The fact that growing season is longer means that, uh, in particular, the spruce bark beetle used to take two years to go through one generation in Alaska. It's now going through one generation every year. So these, just those two pieces of information together mean that you're going to get big buildups in those populations. So what else do changes in timing do? Well, it turns out that we can actually, these rain shifts I've been talking about, when you know more about the species you're working on, you can see that some of them are actually driven by changes in timing. It's not a direct effect of temperature. So this is an old study of mine. Uh, the purple uh, dots are populations which had gone extinct over the past 100 years. The green triangles, populations are still present. All of these sites are completely undisturbed, apparently good habitat. So we're not talking about habitat loss here. Many more extinctions in the south than in the north. Many more extinctions at low elevation than at high have effectively shifted the range of the species. Now, that range shift matches the temperature change and matches changes in snowpack. Fine, but what's actually caused it? Well, OK, so here's the, the climb with latitude. The stippling is where more than 70% of the populations have gone extinct, even in good habitat. The green areas represent where they're still OK. And if we look at that lower range boundary, notice it's in Southern California, Northern Baja, Mexico, and look at what's happened there. And, and I apologize, these are horrid maps, but it's the best I could find. You'll see a warming trend, so a very strong warming trend, 
as well as something you can't see. So trust me, a drying trend. So not the whole of California, but right in that northern Baja, southern California, there's a significant drying trend. And fortunately, since the 1960s, people have actually been studying the impacts of climate on this butterfly. And we know from field experiments, from laboratory experiments, from long-term observations, that when you warm up and dry uh, the population in the springtime, it's not that you affect the adult butterfly. It's not that you affect the caterpillar. It's that you speed it up. Fine, but you're also speeding up the host plant. And the host plant speeds up more than the caterpillar does, which means the host plant dries up. It senesces before the caterpillar is actually fed enough to go into its resting phase that we call diapause. And this takes the population. It's just a two or three day shift in timing. Right? It's not a very big effect. But that two or three day shift is enough to go from a normal starvation rate of like 90%, which is typical in these populations, to 100% and have the population go extinct. So the changes in timing, this getting out of sync between the butterfly and its host plant, has actually been what's causing the population extinctions, which has driven the rain shift. So where are we going with all this? Well, all the changes I've been talking about have happened with this 0.7 degree warming we've already had. Lowest projection is about another two degrees or so. Uh, moderate projections is another uh, three and a half or so. And then some of the models are up to actually 6.8. Maybe this is an old graph. So we're looking somewhere between two, four, six degrees centigrade rise. Well, uh, this is my, not my field of study. I don't do the modeling, but an awful lot of people have been doing modeling to try to project what the impacts would be on biodiversity. And what you see is for another two degrees centigrade rise, uh, extinctions, certainly we're going to get species extinctions. Uh, only for common species, only about 4% are expected to go extinct. But of course, if you're talking about the most sensitive species, those mountaintop ones, the polar ones, about 40% are expected to go extinct. Uh, contractions of boreal habitats, it's no big surprise. So the most cold adapted habitats contract. Bleaching of many tropical coral reefs, well, we've already had 30% bleached. So of course, that's going to increase. And an overall, when you put it all together, overall projected extinction of something like 20% of species. And I, you know, I haven't talked about diseases too much, but again, as, as everything's sort of shifting northward, you expect tropical diseases to shift northward as well. With four degrees centigrade rise, and, and I should say, I think this is something we, we can live with. Not be happy about, but we can live with it. But you start going to four degrees centigrade rise, and you get complete loss of climate space for many species. There's nowhere on Earth that actually has that climate space anymore. So um, you know, you're definitely going to lose the polar bears and mountain species. But you also start losing whole ecosystems, like the Finbosch in South Africa. Uh, mass extinction is predicted at that rate of something like 70% of species are expected to go extinct. Tropical coral reefs are not expected to survive at a 4 degree centigrade rise. And you start losing a lot of the boreal forest. It's starting to impact agriculture production. So in terms of conservation, I think it's very clear that no matter what, we're going to lose some species. So it's, uh, it, it gets worse with more change, but you're certainly going to lose some. 
And the ones that we expect to be most sensitive are, no surprise, the mountaintop species, low-lying low -lying island species, very high latitude, but also anything that is very severely bounded, that's in a very restricted range. So if you think about, then, our endangered species in the USA, well, even if they formally occupied a large habitat, if right now they're very range-restricted, this is going to cause them a problem with being able to deal with climate change. And we've got a whole slew of species um, on our endangered species list that actually are already limited to single mountaintops or just a few mountaintops. So here's an example of one butterfly called the Laguna Skipper. That little dot right there is one mountaintop that it only exists on. It doesn't exist anywhere else. I can name a whole suite of butterfly species, birds, amphibians, and reptiles that fit this category. So they're already on the endangered species list. They already are living in these very restricted mountaintop locations. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that they could survive even that lowest scenario, even the two degree scenario. So what do we do? Well, a group of us uh, published this paper last summer suggesting that normal conservation measures are simply not adequate to deal with this situation. And we've got to sort of think out of the box and think of some new things that might be able to be done, at least for some species, not for everything. So we came up with this decision tree. Uh, and so the first question is, is it at high risk of decline from extinction? If it's not, well, then just use your normal conservation tools. But if it's one of these isolated mountaintop species, you know it's at high risk of extinction. You don't have to know a lot about the biology. So you go on to the next box. This is sometimes called assisted migration, assisted translocation, assisted colonization. It's got a lot of names. So the second box is, is it technically possible? Because if you've got in large mammals, it may be very difficult to actually move them. But a lot of smaller animals, insects, small rodents, plants, are much more technically easy to move. So if you can move it, then you've got to ask the question about impacts that this movement may have on its own. So one, it's very costly, and it's very labor-intensive. So it has to be worth it to either society, just because it's a valuable species, or because biologically it's considered a very key species. But then the next question is, you're going to move it to somewhere. And what we're suggesting that's new is moving it outside of its historic range. Right, so actually moving it to mountaintops where it never existed, moving it to latitudes where it never existed. That's the controversial part. And so the question is, you know, as conservation biologists, should we be in the uh, practice of actually starting invasive species, which is, of course, the counter. And, you know, my, um, well, I'll, I'll talk about that a little more in a minute, but you don't want to do this for many species that you know would have a large impact on a recipient community. I mean, obviously, you only want to think about doing this for species that are likely to be relatively innocuous into a recipient community. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's sort of a more modest example. Um, so this is an endangered subspecies of that Edith's checker spot butterfly that I've been talking about. It's had this northward and upward rain shift. 
down in this Southern California, Northern Baja, is a, a listed endangered species, the Kino checker spot, Euphidrius eat of the Kino. And what's been happening is these yellow dots represent new colonizations that are at higher elevations than the species has ever existed. So that sounds great. It's an endangered species, but it actually seems to be move, using climate change to get the heck out of Los Angeles and San Diego and up into the mountains. The problem is the way the Endangered Species Act is written is that, you know, my first reaction is great, name, you know, several areas as critical habitat that are at higher elevations than the historic range. Well, the Endangered Species Act doesn't let you do that. It's all that the entire act is built around reference to the historic range of the species. And so, if you consider that all of this new habitat that climate has suddenly made suitable, climate change has suddenly made suitable, cannot be protected, then you're dooming the species to extinction because San Diego and LA are continuing to develop its habitat. So in this case, you wouldn't actually have to actively move anything. You would simply have to protect corridors in between the old populations and these new areas and protect areas as critical habitat, which will become climatically suitable over the next 20 to 50 years. So a passive uh, sort of assisted colonization. Now, a, a lot of species, of course, aren't able to do that. They're already so restricted, they kind of can't bop over to the next mountaintop, or just because of geographic constraints. So we do have to think about actively moving some species. Well, what, who are the good candidates? Well, obviously, they have to be at high risk of extinction if you don't do anything. But also, I want to get back to this low probability of doing harm to the new community. So you do not want to be moving predators outside of their historic range, right? That's just a given. You don't want to move a large carnivore outside of its historic range, or even a small carnivore. Parasites, not good candidates. You want it to be a relatively poor competitor. I mean, you want it to establish, so you don't want it to you know, just be blown away by the new community, but you don't want it to be something that's likely to outcompete a native species that's already there. So relatively non-aggressive, both in behavior and in growth. Um, and a lot of resource specialists fall into these categories, so that's why I put that in. Uh, because if you're very specialized, often you don't have a lot of competitors. No one else is using that resource. And so you can go into a new area. It's, it's an empty niche, effectively. And you can go in and uh, hopefully not have too big an impact. And of course, then it's got to be easy and cheap to capture, to culture, to move around. You can't do this with something that's going to cost a lot of money. And because even if it's easy and cheap, it's going to cost some money and labor, it's got to have some inherent biological or social value. So again, this isn't something that's going to preserve all of biodiversity. It's really meant as another option to be considered when you're down to the wire and you're basically ready to take desperate measures to save those few species that we really want to save, that we really care about. Uh, can this be done successfully? Yes. Well, partly we know this because look at our gardens. Our gardens are bringing exotics from all over the world. They do just fine. Uh, and again, the real key to this idea is that you're not bringing them into a garden or a zoo, but you're bringing them into a native community. Can this be done successfully? Yes. 
This was actually done back in the 1970s. It's a butterfly called Euphidius gelati, not endangered. And an ecologist just wanted to know if it could live outside its historic range, just interested in you know, species boundaries, species ranges. Moved a few egg clusters from Wyoming to Colorado, literally just a few clusters. Population started. It was stable at 50 adults year after year after year after year. Didn't seem to impact the local butterfly community, didn't seem to impact the local plant community. Went in, plopped itself down, became part of the natural biodiversity without any obvious negative impact on the recipient community. That's the kind of situation that we're talking about that could help to preserve some species in the face of climate change. So I'm just going to give a couple of summary slides. Oh, and I should say one more point about this. If this had been an endangered species, it would have been, one, illegal to be moving it around. Two, the Endangered Species Act, again, does not consider anything but the historic range as being habitat. So you wouldn't take it to Colorado under the Endangered Species Act. It wouldn't be allowed. It might possibly be allowed as what's called an experimental population, but then it wouldn't be protected under the ESA. So the current DSA does not have this scenario as a viable option for endangered species. Okay. Now, just a quick uh, couple of slides summary, just to recap what I've been saying. If you look at the big numbers globally, overall groups, 41% of species have, shown, have shifted their ranges poleward or upward. 62% uh, of species have changed their timing towards earlier spring breeding, migrating, leafing, blooming. And every major group for which we've got data has shown these kind of changes. Uh, and as again, this is shrubs, herbs, butterflies, birds, mammals, amphibians, corals, invertebrates, uh, marine invertebrates, fish, and plankton. Uh, impacts are now being observed on every continent and in every ocean. So there isn't a region that's, that's considered non-impacted. And if you look at the magnitude of these ships, shifts from 50 to 1,600 kilometers sort of northward, and this upward shift to 400 meters, those are on the same order as the shifts we saw between the last glaciation and the current warm interglacial period. So the magnitude of range shifts is now matching what we've seen, what we observed from fossil evidence between glacial and interglacial periods. Uh, so what does this mean for projected impacts is, you know, if we take strong action and keep climate change down to just another two degrees, we are going to lose the most sensitive species. I honestly don't believe the polar bear has a chance, quite frankly. Uh, but you get up to four degrees centigrade, which is either little or no action, then we're going to get to widespread extinctions and loss of whole ecosystems. So a much, it's not just, it's not a linear change in impacts. Much, much worse impacts with four degrees C. And even at that low scenario, doing nothing carries risk. So people worry a lot about this idea of cystic colonization because they say, well, it carries risk. But if you do nothing, that also carries risk because you will have more extinctions by using standard conservation measures than, than by attempting this assisted colonization idea. And conventional conservation, you know, in making new corridors, increasing habitat is always a good thing, but it's not going to be enough under either climate change scenario. And so we firmly believe that assisted colonization 
should be an option uh, that's considered. Not that it will be done in very many cases, but that it should be something out there as one consideration. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask anybody who has a question to come up and use this microphone, because we are taping. And uh, it will be on our website shortly thereafter. I'm not going to define short, but uh, it will be there. So if you have a question, please come up. And uh, we will start exiting the room about, it's a 5 after 11 now, about 11.40, because there's another thing happening at noon. So it gives us about a half hour window to uh, ask questions. So by all means, come on up if you have a question. Thank you so much. I have a question about invasive species mm -hmm. and the endangered species language. Mm -hmm. It sounds, I would like to know what your thoughts are and within the community regarding, for example, common species, never mind, um, it's almost at risk species, are going to become invasive as they start moving up the mountain yeah. from the lower elevation. Yeah. So most species will become invasive and so on. So are you mm -hmm. uh, advocating for changing the geographic boundaries with all this language and in fact defining habitat as being a certain set of temperature and precipitation and ecosystem characteristics? And if mm -hmm. so, what would be the positives with such a reframing and as well as what could be the drawbacks? Of well, eliminating I, geography. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that is what we're saying is that habitat under ESA should be defined in terms of the conditions that the, or, that the species needs rather than where it has historically been. And of course, the positive side is that that gives you more options. It allows you to potentially help some species that might otherwise go extinct. The negative side is that it has to be done very, very carefully. And that things aren't always done as carefully as you would like them to be done. For instance, there's a group called the Toria Guardians. Uh, it's a conifer, uh, the Toria conifer. It's a native to Florida. And it has been being grown in a botanical garden in Georgia for some time. So they know it can survive in Georgia. And they have simply started planting it out from seed into the surrounding native communities without and you know they're not they're going against the advice of the biologist working on the system um, they're not doing any initial experimentation to try to see if it's a competitor uh, you know they, at least they're doing it from seed so they're hopefully not bringing in you know fungi or other problems um, but we would really like to if this is going to be done we would like to have it done a bit more scientifically a bit more carefully uh, so, yeah, there's the negative side, but then again, on private land, people can do this anyway. This isn't illegal. Even though it's an endangered species, it's not illegal. So, people can do it anyway, and having scientists working under ESA being the only ones prohibited from doing it is perhaps a bit too restrictive. My name is my name is Sandy Chang, and I'm from the World Bank. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for an extremely informative talk. Oh, thank talk. you. I have a couple of questions. First of all, you talked about how... I don't think they I'm can really hear sure. you. Okay. Um, you talked about how the 65% of the butterflies in your study migrated north, mm -hmm. and I'm curious about what's different about that 35%. And also, who fills that 
tropical yeah. biome that's newly evacuated. Somebody has to fill it, and who, who does? Well, okay, so what I, the butterflies I was working on are temperate species, so they're not tropical species. Um, and that's actually my current research is why is 35% stable, because it's, there's not an obvious reason. Uh, and I, that's kind of another seminar. But to give you an idea, you, know, you can get two species that are in the same genus. They eat the same host plant. They live in the same habitat, and yet one has moved north and the other hasn't. I don't know why. I wish I did. I'm trying to study why the heck do they have different responses. It's nothing obvious at all. Um, so there's a lot of variability we simply don't understand. Uh, the second thing is, for, as for the tropical species moving up into the temperate zone, go to the tropics, the data is really bad. Um, so we don't really know what's happening. You know, at their sort of core of their range, most of these species, we don't know what's happening with them. No one's monitoring them. We don't have good data. So I don't know. I, I don't know if they're just moving northward and they're in the interior of their range or if they're starting to decline closer to the equator. Thank you. That, that was a fabulous synthesis, a lot of uh, very high-level thinking. Thank, thank you for that. Um, I, I have a two-part question. One is, um, at, at the upper limits, what kind of proportion of biodiversity are we talking about that could conceivably be, be, be assisted and, and thereby saved? It, sound, it, it, it seems like it would be very small as a proportion of, of total biodiversity. In which case, brings me to my second part of my question, which is um, how, and, and how do we decide and who decides the normative part of this question of what do we save? Uh, I'm not talking about you know, who's a good candidate from an objective doability sense, but the, the normative part of this is the one we value and we're going to assist that one. Yeah, so uh, very, very good questions. This is not going to save, in terms of percents of species or proportion of species, it's not going to save a huge proportion of biodiversity. But if you think about you know, the few hundred species that are on the endangered species list, you know, in, I just went to a fish and wildlife conference where we talked about this. This was kind of the topic of the conference. And you know, by the end of the conference, I got the idea that just in the southwest USA, there are a good dozen candidates. So, you know, maybe it won't save more than 5% or 2% of species, but um, I still think it's worth doing, even if it's not a huge proportion. And as far as who makes the decision, when I think about those dozen candidates, and these were all mountaintop isolated, so Southwest USA mountaintop isolated species already endangered, you know, I think, Unfortunately, biologically, I think they're all equally interesting. I don't think you can make that decision on a biological basis. And so I think it does come down to uh, motivations of the scientist, you know, who's just willing to spend their time on their weekends doing it. Uh, motivations of the public. You know, you, you want to kind of get people involved because a lot of this is labor for just moving things around or planting plants out. Um, so I, I honestly think it's going to come down to who values it in terms of funders, in terms of the general public, and in terms of the scientists who are actively involved in managing these species. Will legislation guide those decisions under the ESA or something? Well, I don't see legislation guiding the value decision. I mean, I would hope not. <laughs> <laughs> there could be a danger of that. 
Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Thank you. Regarding Carl's, uh, some of the literature I've seen indicates that, you know, when people have been studying bleaching, they've seen that sometimes the symbionts, which are driven out, and that's the, the demise of the Carl's, are replaced in some cases by symbionts that are more temperature tolerant. That's absolutely. That's is, is your generalization still the case that it, it's just a degree or two more and the the more tolerant ones will also go? Yeah, so there was a time period of a few years when the coral reef biologists had a lot of debates among each other because they had these genotypes that they knew varied in their thermal tolerance. And the suggestion was, well, even if that location doesn't have them, you can maybe move the hot adapted genotypes in. But in the Great Barrier Reef anyway, where this is, they've done a really good monitoring for these genotypes, in the last big um, SST event, the high SST event, the most hot adapted genotypes bleached. So just in a practical sense, theoretically, you're right. And as I said, for many years, the coral reef biologists were in fierce debate with each other about whether you know, it would just, the whole reef system would be overtaken by the hot genotypes and everything would be OK. But you know, I think the observed response in this last uh, couple of El Ninos show them that that's just not the case. Unfortunately, I mean, I really wish it weren't, but. Hello, I'm at mm -hmm. the American Institute of Biological Sciences, mm -hmm. uh, sitting in today. And I had a question about your plan and how it could be applied. Mm -hmm. um, someone earlier actually um, had part of my question, which was about, are these empty niches anticipating mm -hmm. to be filled naturally? Um, and it sounds like you're still mm -hmm. currently researching that. So then, then my second question was, um, would you think a motivation for this plan would be to manage to fill those niches? Because you mentioned you want low impact specialists, mm -hmm. but would you consider moving in higher impact if they were like um, needed or a key species to fill in the gaps? You mean, I, I think by high impact species, something like a mega herbivore where the local one died off, yeah, do you bring in a new one? In a carnivore, if yeah. um, there's been a loss of a carnivore and it's imbalancing. I, I think theoretically that should be considered, but in practice it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I mean, people already have problems with reintroducing wolves back where they always were. So the idea of doing that you know, um, taking something that has that large an impact out of its historic range, I think, is always going to be very controversial. Um, and it's, it's going to be hard to know that the carnivore you're putting in actually functionally would mimic the carnivore that went extinct. Because they do have different behaviors, they have different food types, so it's, I, th I think that would be very, very tricky. And that isn't really what we were thinking of when we wrote the paper, to be honest. Because that was considered too risky. Hi, thank you very much for a very um, impressive presentation. Uh, as thank you. Detail and um, I have two questions. One is, um, this is a very strong argument, of course, mm -hmm. for um, doing mitigation and really tackling yes. climate change. Yes. Um, and it seems that it can be even stronger if you combine the conclusions from this with the economic value of the ecosystem services that are provided by mm -hmm. these species. So one of my questions is, uh, is that happening enough, you think, that the linking of this type of knowledge with the economic valuation studies? 
Uh, and the other is a more uh, theoretical one, and it's maybe pretty obvious, but I didn't hear you. I'm sorry, but mm -hmm. I didn't hear you talk much about life cycles, and I mm -hmm. guess that the life cycle of a species has a big impact on whether it is even able to adapt to any changes at all. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that a fruit fly can adapt much easier to whatever it changes than a polar bear or mm -hmm. you know, other species that are different in the cycles of life cycles. Sure. I mean, obviously, the longer-lived species have a much harder time. And, and that's what I meant when I talked about this extinction debt, that the fact that we're not seeing, that we're seeing more colonization um, events than we're, that we're seeing extinction events is actually what you'd expect, because the minute you go to long-lived species, they can be there for a very long time, but not be healthy, not be reproducing, not really um, have a stable population. Um, I'm sorry, what was the first part of your question? Whether, um, whether no. this type of conclusions and the modeling is linked to right. the economic evaluation. So uh, there, there are a lot of people doing economic evaluations. There's apparently just came out an update of the Stern report where they talked, uh, gave a new assessment of loss of forest, um, both from land use change, logging, and climate change that was you know, in the trillions in terms of its cost globally. Uh, so people are doing this, you know, are they separating climate change impacts from land use change? I don't think so. I think they're sort of all lumped together as in terms of systems loss. But I, I'm not sure that's a, a bad thing because both of them are happening, so. Thanks for your presentation. Um, just, uh, did you cover uh, coral reef rain shifts? No, I didn't, but it is happening to some extent. So in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, there's a staghorn coral. I can't remember its name. It's uh, moved northward uh, quite significantly, actually, by I think it's either 50 or 100 miles. So that is happening to some extent. But those poleward expansions, um, the physiologists actually believe it's going to be light limited. So yes, as temperatures get warmer, you can get some expansion, but at some point, because the corals have to, um, well, the zooxanthellae have to synthesize year-round, you get to some point where there simply isn't going to be enough light. And I, I should know that latitude because it's been defined, and I just can't remember the exact latitude. Did you say the, the, the person's name was Hel Goldberg. Okay. Yeah, he was actually the senior author on our assisted colonization study, and he's defined. I, I can't remember exactly what it is. And so are there, uh, I guess, um, ocean topographical um, limitations that might, that might limit the expansion in the subtropics as well? I mean, in terms of, I mean, coral need shallow water, correct? Oh, in terms of just having the physical environment. Yeah, right. Yes, but, you know, one of the positive things um, that we came out with is that, although, you, the, yeah, they can't expand all the way to the poles, that you can actually help the expansion that is possible by putting in artificial reef structures. And so you could do that in areas um, that are either too deep or too far away from the um, existing coral. Uh, you can sort of build up structures to assist passive colonization, but you can also, once you've got the structures built up, you can bring corals in. Yeah. So there are things that can be done. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I just wanted to note that uh, the FAO estimated 1 billion people just in Asia alone depend on uh, mm -hmm. coral reefs as their primary yeah. source of protein. So yeah. it's a huge issue. It is. Uh, my question has to do with rates of extinction. And, mm -hmm. and could you compare the rates of extinction that you're observing 
that you can attribute clearly to climate change kind of against the baseline rate of extinction, that there's such a thing, for all those other factors that you kind of mentioned at the outset that are non-climate change, the development yeah. of air pollution. Well, and, and so those are causing about, uh, so far over the last, say, couple hundred years, have caused 10% of species to go extinct. Okay. And so the extinctions we've had so far due to climate change really are the biggest in the tropical coral reefs. And as I said, we actually I haven't seen an estimate because their biodiversity is very poorly known. But if you look at the projections, the lowest projection is for about 20%, and it goes up to about 70%. So if you consider over the last two or 300 years, we've caused 10% to go extinct because of habitat loss principally. I mean, other things as well, but habitat loss is the biggie and that climate change is looking to kill off another 20% to 70%. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a picture. One last follow-up. You mentioned at the very end of your talk, something about, I didn't quite get it, comparison against changes from the last glacial maximum to now. What, what were right. you getting at there? So, so, so when glaciers covered a lot of North America, glaciers went about halfway down the lower USA, and then they receded. You have good evidence for shifts of trees, um, rodents, uh, mollusks. Um, I'm sure there's some others in there. And if you look at the magnitude of those shifts, they were on the order of one to 2,000 kilometer northward shifts. We're seeing shifts on the order of 50 to 1,600 kilometers. So those upper range shifts that we're seeing, the most extreme range shifts we're seeing, are the same order of magnitude as the shifts we saw from the last glaciation to present time. But you're talking about where literally ice receded, there was no early habitat right. to invading a habitat that's being inhabited now by some species. That right. was, are they really comparable? No, it's no. I wasn't meaning for it to be a direct analogy. What I'm what I'm trying to say is we are already approaching that order of magnitude of range shift. And in the last glacial to interglacial time, that was about a five degree centigrade change that drove the 1,000 to 2,000 kilometer range shifts. We've only had a 0.7 degree centigrade change and we're driving shifts, at least the upward at ranges, um, the maximum shifts we're seeing are in that same range. So it's, it's more of a, this is not good. <laughs> this is seriously not good. Okay. Since the proposal you have in response is mm -hmm. driven by climate change, but in particular you emphasize things like warming trends and drying trends and sea surface temperature, in order to make some of the decisions on how to proceed with your proposal, what can be done on the ecological forecast side, the physical mm -hmm. forecast side that would help in the decisions? In other words, what could we do in better weather and climate forecasts yeah. that extends the, say, the sea surface uh, events. What can we do better on our physical side that would help biological? And I've, I've talked to my climate scientist colleagues a lot about this, is that what biologists need are information on extreme events, because it's the extreme events that drive everything. It isn't the change in average yearly mean temperature. It's how many hot days, how many warm nights, how many freezes. That's what's really driving everything. So more detailed information on those extreme events, those just few day events, uh, and of course better spatial resolution. Because I mean, if you looked at the graphs I was showing, you know, the Laguna Mountain Skipper lives on one little mountaintop. It occupies, you know, a few square miles, 
and yet the level of resolution of the climate projections are generally you know, really huge. Um, and, you know, but they know this, and, uh, and you know, I'm not sure what the answer is other than better, cheaper, bigger computers. <laughs> no, I, I ask that. I'm, I'm actually with NOAA and the Weather Service. One of the mm -hmm. things we're looking at across the agency now is really, with other agencies, is we do the weather forecast, we're doing climate service kind of forecast, mm -hmm. but we really haven't made, we're really in the early stages of connecting with the biological and the ecological side. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to do is really connect the two communities to provide a link in the science. Yeah. Not just look backwards at trends, but really have that forecast capability that we've had for like weather for the past 50 mm -hmm. or 100 years, but actually provide that for the ecological decision making. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd, I've been talking to people at NCDC and NCAR about this for a good 10 years, and I'm really pleased that um, we just came out with this Climate Extremes report for the CCSP product 3.3, and I was really pleased that they focused on three-day heat events. And it's like that's exactly what biologists need, is those little three-day heat waves can cause a population to go extinct. And just, you know, how is that increasing? How are the uh, number of... Um, well, of course, the freeze days have already been done for quite some time. But the, the heavy precip events, you know, it's not just the average change in precip, it's the flood events that drive a lot of populations, either to extinction or help colonization. Um, so I actually, I've, I've been pleased that you're starting to see some of that coming out in the projections, but more of it would be really, really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, good. Well, we're wrapping up in great time. Thanks for the questions. Thank you for coming. We'll do something in November. Camille will be here for another half hour as we sort of get ourselves out of this room. But thank you again. Thank you.